So picture this with me, if you will. You are on an airplane. You're about to go, let's just say, we're imagining, we can do what we want. You're about to go on vacation to your dream destination. And you're sitting on the airplane, and as the airplane takes off, you, being a good Christian person, you reach in your bag, and you pull out your paper Bible. Many of you use your phones, but just go with me. You have an actual Bible. And what you may not realize is that, you know, when you open a Bible in public, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what your background is, but that's kind of like the bat signal, right? I mean, you might as well flash some type of light on the ceiling that says, I am a Christian. I know the answer to all of life's difficult questions. If you're having some conflict, you're having some issues, just ask me. Now, we all know that that's not particularly true, but it seems that if you're opening a Bible in public, people get the idea that they can ask you some very, very difficult questions. So imagine with me, you're on the airplane, you open your Bible, you flash the bad signal, and the person next to you, seeing your Bible open, just sort of dives in and asks you a difficult question that goes something like this. Hey, listen, several years ago, I had an abortion. Am I going to hell? Or uh, I've taken human life with my own hands. I uh, just got out of prison. That's uh, something that I can't undo. Am I going to hell? Or maybe somebody walks up to you and says, Hey, you know, I'm a homosexual. I'm an active homosexual living with my partner. Am I, am I going to hell? And the list can go on and on and on with their confessions of what they've done. And at the end of that sentence, they ask a question that if you're like me, you've been asked several times before. Am I going to hell? The question is, then what do you say? I wish I had time to pass the microphone and watch you all sort of stumble over yourself trying to figure out how to answer this question. But if you're like me, you've been asked this question. If you, continue, if you wish to continue on living an open Christian life, my guess is that sooner or later you'll be asked this or some form of this question. Am I going to hell? I'm a bad person by your Christian standards. Am I going to hell? Now, if you want to answer them terribly, if you want to give them the worst possible answer, you might say something like, you betcha, <laughs> or you bet, and you're feeling like you don't want to be bothered, you want to shut this thing down really quickly, you just say, sure, have a good day. Uh, slightly better answer, but technically correct might be, I don't know. That's a, that's a fair answer. But I think that the best answer would probably sound something like this. It would probably start something like this. Let me tell you a story. Now, if you answer a question as heavy as that with let me tell you a story, you better have a good story to tell them, right? But what I want to do today is give you a good story to tell. I think it's a good way to begin to answer such a difficult and burning question that more and more spiritually interested, spiritually curious people are asking about faith. Because in asking, am I going to hell? And asking that question, basically a person is asking, is there any hope for me? Is there any hope for me? I've done terrible things. I, by my own standards, I'm a terrible person. Is there any hope for me? And hopefully we can get to the bottom of answering that 
usually, hopefully, by this, by, by, you know, let me tell you a good story, and I'll tell you a good story today. For those of you who have not been tracking with us over the last several weeks, you know, uh, uh, I want to inform you, I should say, that we're in the midst of a series that we're calling Jesus is for Everybody. And I really, really enjoyed this series over the last several weeks. And basically what we've been doing is we've been looking at encounters that Jesus had with other people particularly encounters that resulted in what we call a conversion. That basically means that those people, through their encounter with Jesus, came to know him in a meaningful way, came to accept him as their Lord and Savior. And so this is important because we've set forth as the goal of these series several things. First, we want to help each and every one of you to see the world as God sees it and to see people as God sees them people of much worth and value, right? So we want to put on the eyes of the kingdom and begin to see the world and to see people as God sees them. We also want to help each and every one of you understand that God is up to something. God is working in the world around us. We've been encouraging you week after week to be interruptible, right? That means we can't be so busy with what we're doing that we can't that we miss these divine appointments, these divine opportunities that God has set up for us to be light in this dark world. I had just a couple of opportunities um, this week to be interruptible. I was spurred on by Ramon's message last week, and I got several opportunities this week, uh, one of which I was able to pray with a person, with my young son, right in the middle of the produce section at Jewel. Why? Because I was interruptible, right? One of the other goals of this series is to sort of remove these walls, remove these barriers, remove these categories that we tend to put people in. Oh, that person would make a good Christian, or that person would be good for our church, or that person, uh, there's some hope for that person. No, we don't have categories. We don't have boundaries. Every single person that we see is a candidate for the hope of heaven. And finally, one of the main goals of this series is to let people know, especially those who are far from God today, those who are far from Christ, for whatever reason, that Christ is searching for you. And that if you would engage this message, this gospel message, that he would receive you with open arms, right? So we've worked through this series, and we've seen a couple of encounters, and uh, this morning we're going to look at a different encounter in John chapter 8. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you turn with me to John chapter 8? And I'm calling this talk this morning, The Woman Caught in Adultery. Now you can tell by the title, this is going to be juicy this morning, right? Get to the edge of your seat because we're really going to unpack this this morning. But no, we're going to talk about the woman in John chapter 8 that was caught in adultery. This is the great story that I hope you tell if somebody should ask you that question, am I going to hell? This is a great story, right? And we'll unpack this today. The woman caught in adultery. We'll look at John chapter 8. We'll start at verse 1. But before I begin, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for yet another opportunity to gather here with your people, to worship you together, Lord. But more important than that, Lord, we, we, we're excited that we get to sit and hear what you would speak and say to us today. Father, we know that there are all sorts of people here from all across the spectrum of faith. And Lord, we know that even in this one story, in this one message, there's something here for all of us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to hear, and not just hear, but receive, and not just receive, but respond to what you would speak today. Lord, put power on these words that you've given me to speak. Move the preacher out of the way so that your truth and your light might shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, there are Bibles on the edges of your rows. If you don't have a Bible at home, feel free to take one of those Bibles as a gift from us. You will also be projecting 
the scriptures on the screens in front of you. John chapter 8, we're going to start at verse 1. Verse 1, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple, and a crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and he taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Verse 8, then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. Verse 9, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with a woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more no more. So here in John chapter 8, we encounter another fascinating uh, account of Jesus's ministry, Jesus interacting with the people uh, that he came to reach. It's another fascinating story, but I should tell you that there is some scholarly debate about this particular passage of Scripture. And I'm sure as you all go home and you study this, because that's what you do after you hear a message, you go home and you fact-check the preacher, right? You go home and you try to figure out if I was on my game, which you should do, by the way. You should go home and check it out. But when you when you look this passage up, you might discover that there's some scholarly debate about the placement of this particular passage of Scripture. Some scholars don't believe that this passage goes where it's been placed within the work of the book of John. They say it lacks a Johannian tone. It doesn't jive well with the rest of the tone of the, the book of John. And so there's some debate about where this goes. But what we're clear on as we engage this is that it has all the markings of the life and the redemptive work that Christ sought to bring to those who were broken and hopeless. And so there's lots of good stuff in this passage, much of which will help us drive at our goals of seeing the world and seeing people as God see them and for helping us to understand and solidify in our hearts and minds that Jesus is, in fact, for everyone. And so there's a bunch of stuff that we can see uh, as we engage this passage. But one of the first things that jumps out is that they brought this woman to Jesus. They brought this woman to Jesus. And oftentimes you see Jesus going about his merry way. Jesus is purposefully sort of engaging people. Jesus is out and about. He sees something and he goes to engage it. This scenario is altogether different because they brought the drama to him. They brought the drama to him. And so I've been encouraging all of you over the last several weeks to listen, have your antennas up. Look for opportunities. Look to see what God is doing so that you might quickly engage this or engage that or engage this person or that person. But sometimes, I mean, you know, sometimes you don't have to go looking for it. Sometimes you don't have to be actively seeking it. Sometimes the drama, sometimes the issues, sometimes the broken people get dropped in your lap. 
And this is essentially what happens to Jesus. Jesus is teaching in the, in the temple. If you look back at chapter 7, you see that Jesus is openly teaching in the temple. Crowds of people are engaging him. Jesus is just doing his Jesus thing. And all of a sudden, right in the middle of his talk, which I'm sure was engaging, which I'm sure probably didn't have anything to do with adultery, these guys bring in this sinful woman. And they say to him, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? And I just imagine myself preaching a message. Maybe it's Christmas time. I'm preaching a cheerful, you know, Christmas sermon, one of my best. And in walks somebody dragging along with them a sinner, a thief. An adulterer, caught red-handed, drags them up here, interrupts my sermon and says, what should we do with this person? What should we do with this person? That's the closest personal parallel I can come to experiencing what Jesus experienced here. But I don't have to be up preaching in order to experience this. People bring drama to my door weekly. I'm always getting tagged in something on social media. Hey, Pastor, what do you think about this controversial, you know, explosive issues? Give us your thoughts. Or oh, this person wronged me. Hey, help us deal with this. Help us work this out. Pastor, my soul's unrest. I know it's 2 in the morning, but just, you know, I just got to drop. I need an answer to this right now. Always bringing drama to my door. Sometimes I go after it, but sometimes it lands in my lap. And that's not just true of preachers, is it? We live in a world, especially a world full of social media, 24-hour news cycles, where there's something always being dropped in our lives, something always being put before us. And if we're not prepared, if we don't have answers, if we don't have insight as to how to deal with these things according to wisdom, according to Scripture, then we're going to miss divine opportunities to make a kingdom impact in meaningful ways. Amen? And so what we see as we walk through this particular story, and this is helpful for us to understand, is that this wasn't just some chance encounter. This is something that these guys cooked up. The scriptures tell us that they tried to trap Jesus. They tried to trap Jesus. And that's meaningful to us because not, I guess not all of these things that fall in our lap are some devious schemes of people trying to trap us and people trying to corner us, but many of them are. Many of them are. And I just get real anxious when somebody leads their uh, question with, so you're a Christian, right? <laughs> so, so you're a pastor, right? Dude, I just hang on to something, man, because it's usually about to get hairy. Usually about what they're about to say next is going to be controversial. It's going to, it's going to try to trap me. It's going to try to ensnare me. And so I just, I just hang on, right? And so this is what's happening with Jesus. The Pharisees, the religious folks, before we think about some dastardly people and shadowy, so some shadowy figures lurking around in the dark, these are, these are church folks. These are church folks. Church people gave Jesus the most headache and most problems, Right? And these are Pharisees. These guys are well-meaning, they're well-intentioned, but they just don't, they don't trust Jesus. They don't think he's the way. And sometimes they just miss the point of who Jesus is. And so they were always trying to trick him, always trying to ensnare him. And bringing this woman caught in adultery from the very beginning, this, this seems a little funny. Now, I'm, not a, I'm no expert in adultery, and you should be grateful for that. 
But it takes, you know, it takes two to do this dance, right? You, you caught someone in adultery, but you've only brought one person. You know, what, what kind of adultery was this? I mean, we're talking about the classic sense, right? There should be another person. So this smells funny from the very beginning. And so they bring this person to Jesus. And the scriptures tell us explicitly, we don't have to figure this out, that they're trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. You see, they didn't want to just outright murder him or outright stone him, although they tried it several times. They thought the cleverest way to deal with Jesus, to get him out of their hair, was to trick him, to trap him, to get him to say something that would either get him in trouble with the law or turn the hearts of the people against him. And so here's the trap. They asked Jesus what should be done with this woman. She's been caught in adultery, and so if Jesus says, hey, go ahead and stone her, that's what the law says, go ahead and stone her, all of a sudden he falls out of favor with the people who's come to know him as the friend of sinners. The one place you can go if you're a broken, busted person where Christ will receive you and you can get some answers and you can get some help and you get get some healing. Jesus has become known as the friend of sinners. And so if he says, yes, go ahead and stone him, then all of a sudden he's fallen out of favor with the people. Now, if Jesus were to say, on the other hand, hey, don't stone her, he would essentially be teaching people to break the law, teaching people to disregard the law, which would then get him in trouble with the authorities. And so they thought that they had Jesus in a tight corner, a corner that he couldn't easy, easily get out of. But what they forgot is that this isn't Jesus' first rodeo, right? He's been down this road before. He's, he's seen their schemes. He's seen their issues, right? And so I think this story is especially applicable to us because I live in, we live in what, what I like to call a gotcha culture, Right? Where, where the news is full of not complete interviews, but little sound bites. Not complete articles, but just little quotes. People even use the, love to use the scriptures and take just a little snippet and help it to say whatever they want it to say. So we live in a, a gotcha culture that wants to catch one sentence, wants to catch you off your game just so they can peg you as one of those crazy Christians who wants to throw everybody over the cliff into a burning hell. And so I think this is especially important for us to understand as we will be Christ's agents of change and hope and go out into the world that we we have to be very careful about how we answer life's difficult questions, very careful about how we act and engage on social media. We talk about social media a lot lot because that's, that's a staple in our culture. That's how lots of conversations are happening. Interestingly enough, there's a lot of, of, of uh, the origin of lots and lots of conflict if we're not careful. But like Jesus, we're often finding ourselves faced with opportunities that we can speak well and represent Christ well, but oh, oh, how often it is that we speak too soon and we speak too harshly and we don't use thought and discernment and logic and kindness and mercy and we end up doing harm rather than good. We can learn from this. I'm ashamed to say that when I was younger, a younger Christian, I was very zealous, very prideful. I was in a fighting mood all the time. Now, I'm a mild-minded guy. I wasn't looking for a physical fight. I was looking for a debate, right? And I could even say things that would sort of bait an unsuspecting person into arguing with me just so I could practice. (laughs) Some new stuff I had read somewhere. I just wanted to practice, you know? 
And so I would often see more seasoned Christians, those who had been around the block a few times, those who knew a trap when they saw one, those who were more discerning, I would see them answering what I, what I thought was an easy question to answer. I would see them answering with discernment. I would see them pausing. I would see them not falling into traps until my young, prideful, zealous eyes, I thought them weak. I thought them, you know, uh, as people who would, would compromise God's word. Some, you know, aggravated person comes up in a crowded room and asks the pastor, hey, what do you think about homosexuals, right? Now, the pastor, he's, this is not his first year doing this. He knows that this person is trying to bait him. He knows this person is trying to, you know, work some stuff up. And so the guy in wisdom says, you know what? I don't have time to unpack that right now. That's a complicated thing. And in my mind, I go, this wimp. This, come on, man. That's, that's open and shut. Just open the Bible, brother. Go to this verse and that verse. And I'm just as eager to debate, and I just I, I shudder to think how many people I, I did harm to because of that. I shudder to think how, how often I fell into someone's or the enemy's trap because I was too zealous, because I was too prideful, because I didn't stop and ask, well, what's happening here? Holy Spirit, what are you doing here? What's going on here? It's not about what I've read or what I know. It's about that in this moment that you would get glory, that in this person, in this moment, this person would know more of you. So, Lord, what's happening here? Help me zoom out here as to not fall into this trap. So Jesus being full of the Holy Spirit, Jesus being full of the Holy Spirit and knowing exactly what they're up to, he engages this in the right way. He engages this in the right way. And the next thing we see is that Jesus not only responds, but he responds with wisdom. He responds with wisdom. We've been defining wisdom over the last few years as skill in living. It's not just smarts. It's not just, you know, doing, making the right choice. It's, it's a collective skill in living that you develop from living life and engaging with God's word and his truth and his wisdom. Jesus responds with wisdom. And the wisdom that Jesus responds with not only helps him to avoid this trap that had been strategically set for him, but it helps him to effectively deal with everyone involved. Everyone involved. Again, I go back to social media because there's a lot of stuff being played out there. And so you're cutting this person who asked your question, or you're quick-firing off a response on the thread that somebody, you know, put up there, and you're defending the faith, and you're, you have this righteous anger. But what you forget is that there's thousands, possibly thousands of people that would read that at all different places and stations in life, all different places and stations on the spectrum of faith, and we just don't have the luxury of being so careless. And so one thing that we know is God's Spirit knows where all those people are. God's Spirit knows what those people need to hear, what they don't need to hear, what will be helpful and what will be harmful. And this is why it's so important, friends, to respond with wisdom. Because there's a lot of folks involved, right? There's this poor woman who's been caught in the act. There are her accusers, the religious folks, the Pharisees. There's the crowd that's standing around. And there's the crowd that throughout the year after year after year after year will read this story. So there's a lot of folks engaging this story. There's a lot of folks standing in the audience, as it were, of this particular story, watching how Jesus will engage this. And I would submit to you this morning that there's lots and lots and lots of people, more than you know, 
that are listening, reading, and watching as you engage these difficult issues. And carelessness is not a luxury that we have. Indifference, overzealousness, that's not something, that's not a luxury that we enjoy, not in the end times, not when so much is at stake. So they tell us in verse 6 that they were trying to trap them, trap Jesus. But Jesus stoops down and wrote in the dust with his finger. He's, at, he, he's responding in wisdom. And so they keep demanding an answer, verse 7. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. Now, interesting enough, Jesus doesn't proclaim this woman's innocence. He doesn't come to her defense in that sort of way, right? And so we can just reasonably understand that this woman, she did it, right? It may have been fixed. It may have been cooked. She herself might have been ensnared. The guy's not there, so it smells funny. But what's widely understood is that she did it. She's guilty. But Jesus doesn't get into that because that's not particularly important. What we do see about Jesus in this story and in stories like it is that Jesus always seems to make the right decision, doesn't he? He always seems to land on his feet. He gets in these harrowing situations, even when there's physical, you know, attacks against him, spiritual attacks, intellectual. Jesus always seems to make the right decision. I wonder why that is. And some of you would dismissively say, well, of course, he's God, right? But we need not forget that Jesus took off his godness when he came to earth. And so Jesus is operating on earth as fully human, but he's operating as a person who's perfectly in step, perfectly connected with the Holy Spirit as a model for how our humanity should link with the divine. And so we can't dismissively say Jesus was God. What we can say is that Jesus was the most principled person to ever walk this earth. He's the most principled person to ever walk this earth. And if you want to see somebody who consistently chooses well, you want to see somebody who consistently lands on their feet and makes it through difficult situations and makes it through difficult situations, I will show you a person who is principled. Now, if you find a person who is always making bad decisions, who is always starting over in life, who's always broken financially, always broken relationally, always broken vocationally due to a series of bad decisions, I will also show you a person who generally lacks principle. Or they have the wrong principles or the wrong values sort of, sort of driving the bus of their life. And so if you see somebody who constantly makes, they're in a good financial position, They've got savings. Maybe they're not the richest person or the poorest person, but they, they do well financially. Usually that's a person who's financially principled. They've discovered the value of spending less than they earn. They've uh, discovered the value of perhaps living life w- within, within a budget. And so when that infomercial comes on where all those really cool knives for just, you know, seven payments of $9.99, and they go, my goodness, those are some good-looking knives. And real quickly, they go, is it in the budget? Did we budget for that? No. Let's just see what else is on. Or as a person who doesn't have those principles and standards, man, they're, they're, they're getting on a plane. Like, they will ship you the knives, but this person's going on a plane. Let me go get those knives because they said they only have three more. 
And they wonder why they can't pay the bills. And they wonder why, you know, there's no savings. We're talking about principles, right? Or are we talking about somebody who, as it relates to their sexuality, who just, just said, you know what, Christ's word have I hid in my heart. God's standard is my standard. I will not give myself physically, sexually to another person that's not my husband or my wife. You know what, that principle is helping them make every relational, physical, sexual decision. Even though that sister looks really, really good, or even though that guy is the handsomest guy, he's a captain of the football team. Listen, this boy is pushing me sexually, pressuring me. This is a no-brainer. Why? The principal is making the decision. And so constantly choosing well. And just sort of go scenario after scenario where you, where you encounter a person with principle. The principal is making the decision. You said, that's a good point, preacher, but what does it have to do with our text today? Well, Jesus is a principled person, principled in every possible way, especially as it related to his identity, especially as it related to who he was and what he was supposed to do. Jesus understood why he came to earth. He understood how and why he interacted with broken, fallen humanity. Jesus was in touch with his mission when he stood up in the temple in Luke chapter 4 and he read from the prophet Isaiah a prophecy about him that he would preach the good news to the poor, comfort the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom to the captives, heal the sick. Jesus said, that's me. That's what I'm going to do. Jesus was in touch with himself in John chapter 3 verse 17. We know John 16, but do you know 17 where Jesus says, I came not to condemn, but to save. Again, in Luke chapter 19, Jesus says that I came to seek and do what? Save those who are lost. And so every aspect of who Jesus was was redemptive toward those who were broken, those who had fallen in the gutter of life, those who have taken missteps and made mess of their life. Jesus understood that he came for them. So he didn't have to do a whole lot of thinking when he walks upon this woman being condemned by this crowd. Didn't have to wonder what his values were as it related to how he's going to relate to this woman. Didn't have to consider and do a whole lot of background and get her whole life story, sort of figure out if she was worthy of saving. He knew that. He knew that. He didn't have to think about that. He had to process that. Now, he probably had to give some thought to how he was going to work this out. Probably got to figure out the how and how to, you know, maneuver through this circumstance, but he didn't have to think too much about whether or not he would redeem this woman. And so this matters to us because I just think we do, we do too much thinking. We got too many categories. We got too many scales and rubrics through which we need to process who's worth it and who's not. Who's worthy of kingdom, light, and love for me, and who's not? We, we, got too many, we got too many, you know, measurements for this. And when I, look about, when I look at Jesus, I look at how principled he was, and I look at how whenever he saw a broken person in the gutter of life, he just, he, you know, he just turned the meter on. Time to go to work. He just put his boot, work boots on. It's time to go to work. This is, this is what I do. And so if Jesus did that, if Jesus instinctively went for the lost and the hurting and the least, if he instinctively did that, if he took that upon himself, that's his identity, that's what he came to do, how much more should it be for us, his disciples, his apprentices, those who are supposed to continue the ministry of Jesus Christ through, through, through love and through mercy? Anybody we find, in the, how much more does that apply 
to us. And so when Jesus engages this woman, he does so with wisdom. And this isn't just, let me figure out how I can cunningly maneuver this trap that's been set for me. He engages this with wisdom, the wisdom that dictates who he is and therefore how he should proceed. I'll tell you, this whole, this whole understanding uh, that we're a part of God's redemptive history and we're supposed to be redeeming fallen humanity and not condemning it, you know, that's a big deal. And I think many of us miss that. And so I look for that when I look in the mirror of Scripture. I look at that when I'm examining myself when something happens or when I read something online or when I'm engaging with a difficult person. I'm constantly having to check myself. Am I engaging with this uh, as I try to engage and be a part of Christ's redemptive work or am I looking to condemn? When I'm looking for a person to disciple me in some area, when I'm looking for somebody to mentor me and to follow me, I, I, I'm mostly looking for whether or not th- th- their, their tone and their affect and the way they deal with issues and what they process out loud is, is engaging people in a redemptive way or in a condemning way. And you don't have to look very far to find many, many Christians choose to lean toward condemnation. They choose to lean towards this, how many people can we shovel over the cliff into a burning hell? How many people can we write off? How many people don't deserve this rather than engaging this whole fight with, but how, can, how many can we grab before they walk over? How many people how, can we snatch from the grips of death and eternal separation? How many people can, so what's your bent today? What's, what, what side do you lean towards? Are you, are, do you lean toward redemption? Or do you lean toward condemnation? If you lean toward condemnation, Christ's wisdom and love is not actively at work in your life. And one of, one of the telltale signs that you're leaning towards redemption is that mercy will be present. Mercy will be present. As we engage this story, sort of walk through this story, the next thing that we see is that Jesus not only responds with wisdom, but Jesus responds with mercy. He responds with mercy, and and mercy is one of the distinguishing marks of a follower of Jesus. A pastor friend of mine says that mercy is the oil of the kingdom of God, in the same way that oil runs your car, and to find yourself without oil in your vehicle would certainly put you in trouble. If the kingdom ever were to operate without mercy, the kingdom were to ever find itself without mercy, it would come to a screeching halt. Many churches haven't baptized people in years. People haven't come to make a decision to follow Jesus for years. And many reasons could result in that. Uh, but I think one of the main reasons is that we've just, we've, 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 we've lost all the mercy. <laughs> we've, we've leaked all the mercy out of this vehicle uh, of, the, of the local church. Mercy is the oil of the kingdom of God. And without it, the lost are just lost. The broken stay broken. The hopeless, well, they stay without hope. But Jesus responds with mercy. He responds with mercy. And Jesus, rather than dealing harshly with this woman, he deals harshly with her accusers. And rather, ju- rather than judging this woman, Jesus chooses instead to judge the judges. 
judge the judges. He says, all right, she's guilty. The law says stoner. Let's go with that. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Wow. Let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. So what happens when Jesus sort of uses that, you know, to to weed through all these would-be accusers? All of a sudden, the scriptures tell us that they get real nervous. They get real anxious. And they sort of walk away one by one. He responds in mercy. He responds in mercy. And mercy is always going to deal kindly with the accused and a bit harshly with those who are the accusers. Scriptures tell us, I believe in verse 6, that Jesus, when asked this question, he stoops down and begins to write something on the ground. Now, we don't know exactly what he wrote. Scriptures don't tell us that. But what we do know is what he wrote made the accusers a little nervous, made them a little anxious, made them start thinking twice about what they had come there to do. And while we don't know exactly what he wrote in the dirt, many people have Taking a, taking a guess at it. And some suggest that what he probably wrote the dirt was he just started writing the Ten Commandments. And as they have their stones, and so come around to see what he's writing, maybe they see an area uh, of, of sin that they've fallen short in. Maybe they don't feel so righteous now. <laughs> maybe they don't feel so justified in their, in their willful you know, act of violence toward this woman, even though they're acting in accordance with the law. Some suggest that Jesus might have even prophetically been writing some specific wrongdoing that each of those stone throwers might have committed recently or in their past. And and seeing that, maybe they just get a little less confident about taking this woman's life. And so the way I see this playing out is people with stones in their hands, and Jesus, you know, through writing on the ground, would say, Hey, Bob, you want to talk about what you were doing last night? You're up to about 3 or 4 in the morning on your computer, right? Right? And you weren't looking at ESPN.com or, you know, Jesus.com. We don't have to go into what you were looking at, but you, you remember that? And Bob goes, <laughs> you know, I got something to do. I, you know, I just remembered I got to go uh, get the oil changed or something. And he looks over uh, and said, listen, man, you, you haven't had eyes for your wife in years. In fact, you, you've been doing a little playing around on your own, haven't you, Ted, haven't you? Looks Ted in the eye, and Ted gets a little nervous, and, you know, he remembers that he's got something else to do. And Jesus probably, one by one, just sort of maybe not said anything, maybe not even read anything, but his eyes probably just connected with their eyes, and all of a sudden, they don't feel so, you know, secure in what they're about to do. And maybe the guys, as they stand there around with their rocks in their hands, they start, you know, making eye contact with one another. Hey, are you going to throw the first stone? Oh, you, you go ahead. No, no, man. You go ahead. You do it. No, you do it. Until one by one, Jesus, through wisdom and mercy, completely breaks up the crowd. Completely breaks up the crowd. Completely breaks up the crowd such that not a single one of her accusers who were ready just moments ago to put her to death can stand up to Jesus' challenge. The one who has never sinned, throw the first stone. 
I don't think that Jesus was saying, hey, if you've never sinned in your life, then you get to throw the you know, first stone. I think what Jesus is saying is, listen, listen, for those of you without open accounts right now, then let's get this business done. For those of you who presently have issues of your own, perhaps in the same realm, sexual deviance, sexual misconduct, let's not forget that Jesus had redefined adultery to not just the physical act, but what happens up here. And so if that were the measuring stick, then every single person in that group might just go and have a seat someplace. And so that's exactly what happened. And so Jesus looks up and no accusers are left. Not one. Not one. Not one. And so Jesus responds mercifully to this woman. And so this is important for us because we have to ask ourselves how to respond to those who find themselves guilty of sin. So many of us uh, have been watching over the last uh, week or so as the Supreme Court decision came down, I believe it was last Friday, uh, that made same-sex marriage legal in all 50 states. And I purposely uh, did not respond to that or make any comment about that on social media because I usually just like for, you know, some time for me to collect my thoughts. And also, many, many times I realize that this is my congregation and not that. And so I can unpack things here and I can have discussions with you and others in ways that I can't really carry on on social media. This is a really hot-button issue. It's a really hot-button issue, so it deserves tenderness, wisdom, and care. But that doesn't mean that I didn't observe lots and lots of, I'll assume, well-meaning Christians just go bananas. Just go bananas. And the reason I categorically say that they went bananas is because many of their responses just lacked mercy. It lacked mercy. Some of them were right. Some of them had the right scriptural references. Some of them shared, you know, very well-written, very biblically grounded articles, but the tone of it, the tone of it simply lacked mercy. And we say that mercy is the oil of the kingdom, and whenever we find a Christian response, Christian engaging, lacking in mercy, it's categorically wrong. I don't care what you're saying. It's categorically wrong, I don't care what you're saying, because we're supposed to be a part of what? The redemptive work that Christ wants to do on this earth through the most hurting, the most broken people. And as I've had an opportunity to to dialogue with a friend of mine this week who recently got married to his partner, I, I I just asked him a bunch of questions. Hey, help me understand what this decision means for you. Help me understand, you know, how this, how you process this. Help me understand how, how, how you process the church's response to this. It was very eye-opening. It was sad to hear him say these things. It was sad to hear him reflect the picture of the church that he saw on that Friday when things went crazy. It was sad. My heart was broken. And why was my heart broken? Because as we discussed this, I realized that my people, the church, generally missed it as it relates to mercy. Missed it as, re, as it relates to mercy. I'm a firm believer that sometimes mercy means be quiet. Sometimes mercy means push the keyboard away. 
Sometimes mercy means shut your mouth. Sometimes mercy means work really hard to do no harm. Think God can't fight his own battles? You think after years of slavery and years of genocide that this is going to be the thing that sends bolts of lightning from heaven? God knows how to take care of his stuff. What does God want from us? He wants us to be his hands and his feet. And with those hands, he wants us to take mercy to all those who need it. All those who need it. All those who need it. Jesus responds with mercy, and he demands that we respond with mercy as well. Jesus looks up and says, listen, where are your accusers? Where are your accusers? And she says, they left, I guess. Does nobody condemn you? No, I guess not. And Jesus says what? Neither do I. And so verses 1 through 10 is packed with good stuff. But I I like verse 11 because verse 11 is where Jesus really shows what he's about. Responds with wisdom. He responds with mercy. But Jesus comes to the back of this thing and he offers what? He offers salvation. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. Salvation, a reversal of what you, you know, you don't get what you got coming. You get a gift instead of punishment, even though you deserve punishment. Your sin's forgiven. Instead of getting condemnation, you get forgiveness. You get welcomed into Christ's family. Listen, this is what, this is what we need, guys. And Jesus offers salvation. I don't condemn you. Isn't that what sits at the core of the gospel message? You deserve punishment. You deserve death. You deserve to go to hell to answer your question, you know, on record. But instead, Christ has something better for you. Why? Because while we were yet in our sin, what did Christ do? He died for us. Why? Because he had nothing better to do? No, because that's what he came to do, to bear the weight of our sin on his shoulders so that you and I, rather than being condemned, might go free. Free for what? Free to live the abundant life that Christ promises us in Scripture. That's the good news. This is what he offers this woman when he says, I don't condemn you. And so that's beautiful. That's beautiful. He deals with our deepest need, and that's to have our sins forgiven. Now, if we were to stop there, we might get the picture that Jesus is soft on sin. And he just wants to offer a slap on the wrist for sin. And that he wants to just, like a priest in a confession box, just sort of deal with these sort of one-off sins rather than dealing with the, the, the big issue is our sin problem. But we get to the very last sentence in this particular passage, and we see Jesus do what he always does, and that is Jesus will deal with our sin. He'll deal with our sin. It's our biggest problem. It's our deepest need is to have our sins forgiven, to have our sinful nature changed. And basically what that means is that we need a new boss. We need a new boss. The essence of sin is that we want to call our own shots. We want to, be our, you know, we want to save ourselves through methods that we find convenient and comfortable. And Jesus says it doesn't work that way. And so the most pressing thing that Jesus says to this woman is, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. So if you've got this picture of Jesus 
sitting as a priest, cloaked in the confession box, and he's just dealing with your sin one by one as you come and confess, oops, you know, I ate too much today, oops, I lied, or oops, you know, I looked at porn, or oops, this, that, and other. I think Jesus wants to sort of coach you through those bad decisions, but ultimately, he wants to deal with our sin. Ultimately, he wants to deal with our desire to be our own boss and to call our own shots. And true salvation comes, right, when we lay aside our will and we pick up his. When we scooch out of the driver's seat and we let him drive. This is, in essence, what he says when he says, go and sin no more. Yeah, lady, you did it. There's no question about that. Yeah, you did it. You did it. But you're a different person now. So don't do that again. Now, is Jesus telling us don't sin so that we can get into heaven? No. He's saying, listen, don't sin because that's not who you are. You're a different person. That's not who you are. Jesus is telling us not look at porn because we won't get into heaven because of that. No, he's saying that's not who you are. That's not, my, that's not my best for you. Is he telling you not to give yourself sexually to somebody who's not your husband because that'll keep you out of heaven? Maybe a pattern of it will. But he's saying, listen, that's not who you are anymore. Is he saying tell the truth and to be honest in your business dealings because lying will keep you out of heaven? He's not, that's not the essence of what he's saying. He's saying that's not who you are anymore. You're a new person. Remember, I don't condemn you. Remember, you, you're, you're a son. You're, you're a daughter. And that's not who you are anymore. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. He deals with her sin. And Jesus deals with your sin today as well. See, everybody involved got their sin dealt with this day in this story. The woman, she got her sins dealt with. Her accusers, the Pharisees, they got their sins dealt with. And guess what? You and I, as we stand in the crowd, just sort of, you know, probably recording it to post it later, right? We got our sins dealt with as well. And what Jesus says to all of us today is, I'm not winking at your sin. I'm not ignoring it. I'm not sweeping it under the rug. Go and sin no more. So what does this mean for us, this whole story woman caught in adultery. What does this mean for us? If you recall the introduction, we talked about being asked that pointed question on the airplane. Hey, uh, I'm an adulterer. Am I going to hell? I'm a homosexual. Am I going to hell? Listen, I lie a lot. Uh, am I going to hell? Listen, I've aborted my children. Am I, am I going to hell? What's the, what's the answer to that burning question? What's the answer to that burning question? Because there will be people that will come to you with that or similar questions about themselves. And you can bet there will be people that will come to you with that or similar questions about somebody else, you know, that they're looking to condemn and that they're looking to judge. What will you say? Hopefully you say, let me tell you a story about a woman who was caught in adultery. She did it, caught red-handed. Let me tell you how Jesus responded to her accusers. Let me tell you how Jesus responded to her. He forgave her. He offered her salvation. And he forgave her sin. He dealt with her sins. And so your piddly little sins aren't going to keep you out of heaven. Your sins aren't going to throw you in to hell. Trying to save yourself will. Rejecting God's plan of salvation, which includes his son, will. 
But should you engage this story? Should you engage this Jesus? Should you surrender your life to him? It doesn't matter what you've done or what you're doing, Christ will receive you. Christ will receive you. Christ will receive you. And before some critic says, listen, but what about their sin? Listen, did I just not read the last sentence to you? Christ says, go and sin no more. He, he, he talks about that. He deals with that. And so this is a comprehensive story that gets to the very bottom of that question. Am I going to hell? Well, that's really up to you. That's really up to you. Choose today who you will serve. Choose today who you will serve. And for the Christians in the room, those of us who are thoroughly convinced, those of us who have been welcomed into the kingdom of God, listen, we we really need to understand that Jesus is seeking and searching for those who are broken and sinful. And those are the people who qualify most for the kingdom of heaven. And for those of you who are hurting and broken, those of you who are far from Christ today, what you need to understand is that Jesus will have you if you will have him. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter how you've messed up. Jesus doesn't condemn you, and he bids you to go and sin no more. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. I thank you, Lord, that you offer us chance after chance to get this right. God, whether we're following you, whether we're a Christian and we're supposed to be out engaging the broken world around us and we constantly forget what you've sent us to do, Father, you remind us through your word over and over and over again and give us chance after chance to start over and go back out and engage this world that you love so much. And Father, where we're a broken sinner far from you today who constantly miss it and who constantly break your heart, and who constantly break your law, Father, you give us chance after chance to get it right. God, would you remind us this morning and every morning that you are for everybody, that you came to seek and save the lost, that you came to bind, the broken, bind up the brokenhearted, you came to set at liberty those who are captives. Would you remind us of that this morning, Lord, so that we can be about the business of being your hand and feet, responding with wisdom, responding with mercy, this broken and hurtful, hurting world around us. Jesus, would you write that on our hearts this morning? And Father, as we worship you this morning in spirit and in truth, Lord, will you deal with us in the ways that we need to be dealt with today, Father? And for those of us who are indifferent about the world around us that's dying and going to hell, Lord, would you break our hearts again this morning for them? And for those, Lord, who are just under the boot of life, dealing with all kinds of besetting sins who will wonder, Lord, if you want anything to do with them, Lord, I pray that you would remind them this morning that you welcome them with open arms into your family. Jesus, you are for everybody. And we ask that you would write that on our hearts, wherever we are today, and that we would not just hear, but receive, and not just receive, but respond to what you would say and do within us today. We ask these things in Jesus' name.